As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. So, Joe, do you know it's been almost a year to the day that I've been uh, living out in the Middle East? I did. The time has. I'm trying to think. I was going to say time has flown by, but I I don't. But that would be the opposite of it's. It's felt so long. It's felt like an eternity. I can't believe it's. It's. I can't believe it's only been a year because it just seems like an eternity since you were here. Is that? I'm trying to think of which is the way to frame it. Yeah. Good save. uh, I think. Okay. Okay. Right. I mean, that actually means that we've been doing Odd Lots um, internationally for longer than we actually did it together in the same studio, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. It, That is is pretty amazing. All right. right, What's the point, though? What's the point of this intro? Okay. So when you think about the Middle East, uh, obviously, uh, a lot of people think about it as a rather troubled region. What are some of the major issues that spring to mind when you think of the Middle East? Well, obviously, one of them from an economic standpoint is the reliance of many countries on uh, oil and the future of the petroleum economy. And then, of course, you know, what you were saying is the troubled aspects, the sort of continued uh, tension regarding, uh, you know, political systems and stuff like that. I think you want to say religion as well, right? That as well. Yeah. (laughs) All, All of that. All of that. When I think of the Middle East. All of that seems combined, the tension of religious interests, political interests, opening up to uh, sort of attempts at democracy and a version of capitalism all seem to um, to swirl around when I think of what's going on in the Middle East. All right. Well, um, to celebrate my one year anniversary, I guess uh, we're going to be discussing all these issues with someone in finance who is trying to solve pretty much all of them. So quite a hefty task, as you might imagine. That does sound like, that does sound like a hefty task. All right. Uh, we're going to have on Imad Mostak. He is the co-chief investment officer for Capricorn Fund Managers and really, I think, one of the smartest guys around when it comes to emerging markets. Imad, thanks so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. You're too kind. 
So, Ahmad, uh, we got to it a little bit in the intro, but for the past year, I've really had a front row seat um, to see the impact of low oil prices on Gulf economies. And a lot of these economies have really built themselves around the energy industry, and it's really interesting to see them try to wean themselves off of it now. Why is it so or seemingly so difficult for them? Well, I think that ultimately what you have is you've had a very established social contract for a number of years, and this is something we've seen across the world. It's like, what is the fundamental basis of your relationship with the governments? In the Middle East, it was a case of they extracted energy rents, and they provided almost a jobs guarantee for their citizens, and they brought in expatriate labor to actually have productive work. That's being rewritten now because it's a question of can you keep on with these public sector jobs in particular when the oil prices have collapsed to such a degree? Is this a cyclical collapse where the oil price is going to 50, it'll go back to 100, and then you know it'll keep on weaving? Or is it permanently at $50 or lower? And that's something that's really concerned them because they're like, uh, maybe we can't afford to employ these millions of young people who are kind of coming through. You know, when you think about uh, there's sort of a famous fact that economies that are highly dependent on natural resources, they get trapped. They get these overvalued currencies. They get overly dependent on that specific uh, resource. The rest of the economy kind of atrophies. If you're not in that resource, then you really have nothing going for you. Um, you know, th this idea of transitioning away. Uh, from oil dependency. Is it really plausible? I mean, it's a great thing to talk about diversifying the economy, but is it something that can actually be done? Well, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, I think all economies, when the core driver starts to come away, the question mark is always, can it rebalance? I mean, China has been reliant upon debt, plus obviously the base growth effect. These ones have been reliant upon the resource curse. Can they move away? And I think you need two things. First of all, you need to have that like impetus, and then you need someone with a very strong hand to push it through. If you look at countries like Abu Dhabi and Kuwait, they have so much cash that for the moment, the impetus isn't really there. You look at somewhere like Saudi Arabia, it's coming from a very low base, but there's tremendous potential for reformation there. And you have this millennial deputy crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, really trying to push through everything possible in terms of societal, economic kind of corporate reformation there, Aramco IPOs and things like that. Will they be successful? Well, they're not going to achieve Vision 2030 because it's just far too aggressive. But definitely you will have improvement from where we are now because you have to have improvement from where we are now or you're going to have increasing social tension. I'm glad you brought up Saudi Aramco. Uh, this is a huge story, both in Gulf markets and internationally. It's the listing of Saudi Arabia's state-owned oil company. And I'm glad you brought it up because I wanted to pick up on your point earlier. Do you think the downturn in oil prices is cyclical or is it something more structural? Because there are some analysts who have talked about Saudi Arabia listing Aramco because the country basically thinks that oil demand is eventually going to peak. Well, I mean, I think that if you are a sensible leader of a country that's so reliant on oil with 86% of your revenues coming from it, you do need to diversify. I think realistically, the Saudis don't know. Nobody knows if this is cyclical or secular. Um, but you have to be prepared for these eventualities. And what Saudi Arabia is effectively doing, if you read between the lines, for their kind of pension fund, putting $2 trillion offshore, 
kind of trying to get FDI to come in and stabilize the real because oil receipts aren't there, is they're trying to shift from basically having oil rents to having rents extracted from dividends and, you know, from the creativity of others abroad. I mean, this is why they're investing in things like Uber with $3 billion. They will eventually invest in mm. companies like Tesla, I'm sure. They're going to do massive investment into U.S. infrastructure. I mean, there was the $100 billion fund with SoftBank. Half of that, of which they're providing $45 billion, is going to go into the U.S. So I think it's, they're just trying to swap some cash flows now, just in case. Um, because they don't want to be caught out just as they've been caught out over the last few years. And now is the time to do it when the pressure is on so they can make these social changes as well as economic changes. I get that idea that they have all this cash and what they want to do is have all these investments abroad and then hopefully those investments pay off and they pay a recurring dividend and that sort of replaces the you know the, the month the money they get all the time from oil. But what about long term in terms of the domestic economy, in terms of all these people, uh, in terms of jobs and stuff like that, uh, new industries? Is there any thought or is there any progress being made to uh, new domestic industries that will replace oil if it eventually sort of fades away? I mean, definitely. There's obviously massive plans and things like that. But the bottom line is you've got 600, 700,000 young Saudis coming through, um, increasing amounts of women in the workforce. You need to create jobs for them. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to cluster around big industries and really encourage SMEs to come through. Whether or not it'll be successful, I think it's going to take time. I mean, you can't change the mentality of a country overnight from basically being guaranteed a public sector job with 60% of Saudis in the public sector to having to work in the private sector. But, you know, initiatives such as saying, well, foreigners are no longer allowed to work in malls, it must be Saudis and things like that. They're a kind of stealth tax on the private sector, but they are getting more people into the workforce who are Saudis. But like I said, this thing's going to take time. Um, and the question mark is, do they have enough time? Um, I think the jury's still out on that. So let's take a step back, um, because, of course, diversifying the economy and building up domestic industries is something that's going to take time. You can't really snap your fingers and have it happen. Let's talk about the low oil prices themselves. Um, this is obviously a hot topic in markets, and it seems like not a day goes by that we don't have a headline that says something about OPEC versus the U.S. shale industry and a headline questioning OPEC's ability to actually impact prices in the face of rising American production. What power do Middle East producers actually have when it comes to influencing the price of a barrel of crude? I mean, um, I think just on one quick final point about the previous thing, um, the template mm. there is Dubai, where it took about 10 years to re-diversify because they ran out of oil. Now, hopping on to the question you just asked, look, um, OPEC is not a cartel. There have been lots of studies done. It's just too diverse. There's too many competing interests. Everyone's kind of tapped out when oil prices are low because they overspend when oil prices are high for it to be a cartel. Um, what it approximates in kind of economic terms is a Stackelberg competition. And what happens there is the leader moves and everyone else follows. But the only way that kind of they can punish, in this case, Saudi Arabia, everyone for not following is to just increase production and collapse the prices. And that's kind of like what you saw in 2014 when Saudi Arabia wanted to try and push out shale. But also it played out the scenarios. If we cut, are we going to get into a repeat of the 1980s when we went from like 10 million barrels down to two and a half million barrels? and everyone else will cheat and Shell will just come and take the money that we're leaving on the table. 
That was the dynamic in 2014. Right now, I don't think anyone is thinking that there won't be an extension of the OPEC cut, and it has stabilized oil prices. Why is that? It's because Oman, Saudi, everyone are starting to cash in on the long-term cash flows of their oil production through bond issuances and equity issuances.、Mm. So the payoff structure for them is different. You know, it costs Saudi Arabia four and a half billion dollars a quarter at fifty-dollar oil to cut to the amount that they have. They just raised a seventeen billion dollar bond. You know, the Aramco IPO, fifty, a hundred billion dollars crystallized. The payoff is very different to the extent that I think they can cut probably two million barrels by themselves if they really, really need to, and still come out ahead on cash terms. That would impact the market because the oil market is fascinating because you have ninety-six million barrels of production, but oversupply is only one, two million barrels in each direction. But the price moves; it doubles, it halves. It's incredibly sensitive to small shifts in production. It's just that OPEC can't get its act together to actually synchronize that usually, and definitely to overextend from where they are now. So moving from 1.2 million barrels to two, you'd need to see the oil price drop below 40 again, probably, as an example. So they're kind of in the comfort zone. So just to be clear, going back to what you said, what's different now is the ease with which the、uh, oil-producing countries are able to monetize future production via the bond market, which sort of makes it a little more economical to hold production down. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, I think that it's a change in mentality.、Um, you know, in 2014, they didn't know what the elasticity of shale would be. They've got some points of that. You're starting to see U.S. shale come back online, but obviously the easiest stuff. And you're not getting into the harder stuff, and oil service companies' prices are going up, and things like that. But they didn't know what that response function would be, and the payoff was just different. Now they've done all the groundwork, led by Saudi Arabia. They can start having these cash flows because really, without Saudi Arabia, you can't have any cuts. So it comes down to: does Saudi Arabia want cuts or not? That's why, like I said, if you model it, it's a Stackelberg competition, which is one where everyone follows the leader, as it were. Um, because if Saudi didn't move, you wouldn't have an OPEC deal, right? Let's pause for a second and take a short break to hear from our sponsor. But first, we want to take a quick moment to let you know about something really new that's cool from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or Google Chrome extension to scan the news, look at any story on any website, and instantly bring up news and information from Bloomberg relevant to what you're reading about. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So it means that no matter where you're reading the news, you can basically bring all the data and information that's on the Bloomberg with you.、Uh, it's kind of fun to test out, right, Joe? Right. So if you're reading a story about Tesla or Microsoft or Apple or Facebook, or if you're reading、uh, something about oil, as in related to today's episode, you can、uh, immediately bring up news and data from Bloomberg. And of course, we have all the news and data in the world. It's really awesome. You should、uh, check it out by downloading the iOS app or search the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome Store to try it out. Yeah, and it's called Lens. We should probably say what it's called, right? <laughs> oh, right, right. It's called Lens. Learn more at bloomberg.com/lens. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at cit.com. Put knowledge to work. And 
And we are back with Imad Mostak of Capricorn Fund Management. Imad, you were just making the point that the price of oil or oil prices tend to be very, very affected by relatively small swings in production. Two million barrels, I think you said. If that's the case, then how come OPEC can't get its act together and actually control the price of oil in the way that some people, you know, used to think that it actually did? Well, I think that if you look historically at proper cartels, diamond, tin, etc., um, the cartel members typically control 70-80% of the market, but the dynamics were a bit different. In the case of OPEC and oil, what they're really focusing on at the moment is the supply side of things, and the methodology in terms of OPEC cuts is a very crude methodology, you know, we will cut 1.2 million barrels over the next six months. That's the current cut. That's cost them $10.5 billion of lost income um, from the barrels they didn't produce and sell if you assume $50 oil. If the market shifts, if you know there's too much heavy versus light, but they're only cutting heavy crude, they can't really adapt for that. And you can't really enforce it either. The enforcement this time in terms of compliance has actually been very good compared to previous cuts. But then when one party starts cheating, historically, everyone starts cheating. And then it's just Saudi left by themselves at two and a half million barrels while Iran kind of makes merry with lots and lots of cash. Because you don't find out. I mean, we've seen all these discussions about the OPEC monitoring and things like that. And loads of people say, well, this is the number. Iraq saying, no, this is the number. It takes two to three months to actually see if anyone's cheating. So it just doesn't have the enforceability. It doesn't have adaptability. Um, and that's why it's so difficult to really get everyone together on the same page unless they're terrified. So let's go back. Uh, when we started the episode, uh, Tracy introduced you as someone who had was working on the solutions to some of the region's biggest uh, vexing problems. And so let's get into this from an oil perspective. Uh, how could the Mideast oil producers sort of rearranged their affairs such that they didn't get, uh, you know, so, such that they weren't so susceptible to these traps. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to give my kind of tuppence and try and help out wherever I can. Um, <laughs> but my suggestion is what I call the Tactical Petroleum Fund, which is to flip the um, focus from supply onto demand and effectively con- create a uh, marginal consumer for oil. So rather than have this very blunt instrument where you cut X million barrels and you lose $10 billion every single six months, instead, if the aim is to remove barrels from the market now because you think now there's oversupply, in the future there will be undersupply because you're not doing the investments, the trillions of dollars that have been cancelled to maintain the future supply in the face of declining production. Because, you know, you lose four or five million barrels a year from existing fields of production. That's huge. And shale can fill some, but it can't fill that oil. Um, my suggestion is that rather than cut, you know, X percent of your production, put half of that amount equivalent, produce at maximum, and put it into a fund. And then what the fund can do is the fund can leverage up two to three times because you can effectively hedge against the oil price dropping 20, 30, 40 percent and go out and purchase barrels from the market and move them off the market being available to the market. Because the most fascinating thing for me for the oil prices and the oil market is that not every barrel is equal. When you get a headline out of Iraq, you know, Chehun Kirkuk pipelines down 400,000 barrels a day, 200,000 barrels a day, or Nigerian crude down 300,000, 400,000 barrels a day, the market often doesn't even flinch. A little bit of a shift on U.S. shale and the market goes ballistic. 
Hmm. Oil in a strategic petroleum reserve is treated as effectively not available to the market. Oil in U.S. inventories, which is the current focus, is treated as massively available to the market. So what you need to do is effectively create a buffer stock, just like Joseph in the Bible, you know, with uh, seven years of feast and seven years of famine, oh. whereby you take these barrels and you just move them off the market. And because you don't actually care about going to zero on that fund, there are so many ways you can do it. And you can really have things like if you've got too much light oil, you can move the light oil. Too much heavy oil, you can move the heavy oil. If the oil curve and the oil market is not in oversupply, you don't make any purchases. You know, you have that flexibility. And importantly, you have enforceability. Because it's not a case of two months later, have you cut production? No. It's have you paid at the start of this month? Yes or no. Um, so it's also a lot fairer because, for example, now Saudi Arabia is cutting 30%. They produce 30% of production, but they're bearing 45% of the cost of this OPEC cut. So realistically, um, given the dynamics within OPEC and you know what we've seen so far, what do you think are the chances that they would do something like this? Because in, in some ways, it means you have to cede a little bit of influence to an independent party, right? Like I'm assuming the oil fund would be somewhat independent from individual producers. Yeah, I mean, I think the typical way that these types of buffer stock systems, although there hasn't been common quite like this given the interesting nature of the oil market, is that anyone who participates gets a vote and a share, and you get kind of a view into that. It becomes a bit of an invisible hand in the market, and what it can do is it can smooth out the volatility of the price, but then if you start to get greedy, you will eventually get taken out. Um, I think probably the optimal solution is once they've gamed through the scenarios, and you know, the listeners can do this at home, just introduce this as a player into the game, it works out a lot better financially, is to have a hybrid system, whereby you have an OPEC cut just as you have now, but then you introduce this as a small player in the market and see where is it balancing, just like Saudi Arabia want to see how is shale going to balance the market, um, because it becomes very interesting there. So you don't, it's not either or, you can have a hybrid, but I think in the long term this, well, you can show mathematically, you can show qualitatively, this is a superior option than very crude OPEC cuts. Let's take a turn a little bit from this. Uh, Tracy, and also in the beginning, we were talking about some of the other tensions that existed in the region beyond just the challenges of oil economics, the questions about the long-term viability, the sort of game theory aspects of how the OPEC countries deal with each other. There's obviously a lot of issues uh, related to politics, religion, there's the uh, refugee crisis emanating out of Syria, all kinds of things that people sort of see as never-ending issues one after another in the Mideast. You also are very interested in those areas, and you've sort of thought through some ideas. Tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that you're working on there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that um, there are two main things. One is on religion, and one is on kind of the refugee crisis. Um, just to touch on the religion one, because uh, I can't talk too much about it. Um, you know, we've done a lot of work in terms of really understanding extremism and Islam and kind of the various um, aspects of that. Because obviously you now have the Sunni-Shia divide, and then you have these extremists burning up the place in Syria. When you start kind of really doing and analyzing Islam in a very structured way, it's becomes very clear that kind of the politicization of it, as with many other religions, stems from a lack of access to available information. Um, and it's actually quite fascinating because when you see in terms of jihadist recruitment is that they provide a little bit of information, which is more than you get from the established authorities. 
and then people believe they know everything and what happens then is when you believe you know everything that's when you are at the most dangerous in many different fields right um kind of this has been shown and this is what allows people to think well i know better than that person and then i can go and kill or do all sorts of dangerous things the most optimal solutions are where you know a bit and you know you don't know that much or where you know a lot and you know you don't know that much um and so my question is kind of how can you provide a resource to avoid this because when you look at the data, I don't know if you guys know, but engineers are 10 times more likely to become extremists than any other group, as an example. Huh. Why is that? It's because if you think about what you do as an engineer or an educated individual, you build models, right? And so if they get information that's a little bit better than what's publicly available, it seems like a plausible, coherent whole, the message of these jihadists, especially if they are marginalized for some reason or another usually political um and so i thought well, for me was the most fascinating thing and then i thought about how do individuals access information how does islam work just in kind of one minute how islam works or sunni islam should i say is that during the time of the prophet it was really easy to find out what islam was because you asked him and he had revelation when he died it became a bit more complex and then everyone all his disciples disciples of the disciples said all sorts of things so three centuries after they decided to codify it by getting the eternal Quran and building a picture of the temporal life of the Prophet and figuring out the links between them and applying it to today. That was actually quite an interesting thing because it's what's objective versus subjective in the religion. Because in certain religions you have this hierarchy where you have a large amount of subjectivity because of revelation, whereas Islam is actually quite ordered. So one of my projects, Ananas, is an attempt to provide the information access in an ordered basis. Um, and we're starting with the Quran and having a really nice version of the Quran where you can have full contextual access um, in terms of being able to dig in as much depth as you want into the language, into all of the sources, um, really consumerified. And hopefully by building that up and doing the same for Shia, Islam and other religions, we'll have a kind of standardized kind of Wikipedia Google age system where you have reliable access to all of these sources and you can start to compare and contrast. Because the differences between Shia and Sunni aren't that big, right? The differences between mainstream and fundamentalist is that fundamentalists believe they know everything. If you can provide resources where you can objectively show they don't know everything or introduce that element of doubt, maybe that will have an impact, you know? And so that um, is kind of what I'm hoping. Because, like I said, when I start breaking it down and from the research we've done, there isn't that much difference between some of these groups warring with each other on an ideological basis. And definitely these extremists, they literally cherry-pick. Mm. But sometimes people don't know better. More people Google ISIS than Islam now. So what are they going to think? Can I ask, I know you can't say that much about this, but can I ask a very quick question? You said you're starting out with the Quran. Um, how do you plan on dealing with the Hadiths? And I, I should say, you know, I'm an outsider looking in, um, but my understanding is the hadiths, which are basically um, the reports of what the prophet said um, while he was living, and they kind of exploded after he died. Um, how are you going to go about treating those? Because that seems to be where some of the confusion comes from. Yeah, so, I mean, as you said, the hadith are the stories of the prophet, and three, cent three generations after the prophet died, these were collated to build a picture of the life of the prophet, which is what's called the sunnah which is why kind of um, the major group of Muslims is called the Sunnis. They're the ones who followed this model. Um, but you know how you have this whole thing about fake news now, mm. right? right? How do you judge authority? 
there's a whole science in Islam about trying to figure out which one of these are true and which of these are fake. And a lot of the issue comes where things with bit of dubious quality, potentially, in terms of only one chain of narrators, for example, versus lots of people saying the same thing Chinese whispers style from Gibraltar to Kazakhstan and agreeing on the content, those come through. So people just hang their hats on just this one transmission and then say that women can't drive, as an example. I think that, again, that needs to be systemized with the help of the scholars, because what I see from my studies of Islam and kind of the research we've commissioned is that, look, you had a thousand years of Islamic caliphate, and it wasn't like ISIS. It wasn't great. It wasn't perfect. But what you had was process and reasonable doubt. For example, for amputation, um, you know, the whole Aladdin thing, Princess Jasmine gets a hand grab because she's stolen an orange and they're going <laughs> to chop it off. There were 84 preconditions for that under a thousand years, you know. They had to have seen you stealing three and a half thousand dollars worth of stuff from someone's pocket and you can't have been hungry and you had to have two witnesses to that. You know, this whole stoning for adultery, you need to see four witnesses to penetration, which is kind of weird. <laughs> but if you didn't have four witnesses to penetration, then the accusers would get lashed 80 times. What you had was harsh punishments, but a massive amount of process. You've lost that process now. And that's why you're seeing the really negative side of things. But again, this needs to be systematically done with the whole community backing. But this is the fun thing about data now, right? We can assemble data. It just needs to be done systematically. So, you know, hopefully I'll plant the seed and those working with me will. And then it's up to the Islamic community to kind of take that forward. Uh, kind of Google Wikipedia for Islam with a little bit of AI thrown in. Uh, we'll see how it grows. Uh, again, this is going to take most of my life. But if it works, you know, it'll help my kids at the very least. <laughs> that I, I really like that perspective. Uh, before we wrap up, we just have a couple more minutes. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit about you also are interested in the uh, you know pursuing things regarding the refugee crisis. Tell us quickly about what you're working on there. Yeah, so this is actually my wife's project. Um, it's called Humanitary. Um, basically, hopefully in the next, by 2020, she wants to give every refugee a biometric smartphone. Um, so Galaxy S4 equivalent costs about $42, $45. Now, this is really interesting because what you have is a group who really need to have help and access to information who have lost their identity. Biometrics have a lot of ethical issues around them in terms of fingerprint iris scans. But imagine giving a refugee a phone in coming to the UK. They can suddenly get a bank account, Oyster card for the transport. But the most interesting thing is they can suddenly have access to work. And this is about, you've got us thinking about the future of work in terms of you go, you log in, you can start working for a charity. You can build up a biometric CV for yourself, which shows who you are. And that's incredibly important in giving people back their identity. And again, it's kind of like, it's going to be difficult, but I think it's achievable because everyone wants to help the refugees. This is $40, $50 when the average refugee costs $3,000 to $30,000 a year. And, you know, as you can start building this, at least it's an option. Because I don't know about you guys, but I'm scared about kind of the next five, ten years. Um, kind of looking where global trade is going, looking where artificial intelligence is going, looking where jobs are going. So, you know, again, trying to do our little bit to help. Um, but really trying to pull together a lot of different strings to do so. All right, uh, Imad Mostak, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Joe, I think, um, well, I, I think Imad has uh, given himself a pretty hefty workload, right? 
Yeah, solve uh, <laughs> the sort of game theory stuff that's vexed OPEC OPEC for decades. Mm. Uh, defeat extremism and solve the refugee crisis. But I I loved loved that conversation. I mean, we've I've talked to Mod before on TV. He's definitely one of the uh, sort of more interesting people around. And I like that rather than just talk about all this stuff, which we all do all the time, he actually has ideas that he's putting into practice and or trying to put into practice. Yeah, I think there's a tendency in markets sometimes to just kind of throw your hands up and say, well, that's the right. way it's always been. Yes. And people don't really think about, well, could you actually change the structure right. and make it different? Um, so it's really interesting to hear from someone who's actually trying to do that on a number of levels. Absolutely right. Like we just sort of, uh, we just sort of accept. Okay, this is how OPEC works, mm. or this is the information asymmetry that allows extremism to thrive. In fact, I thought that was really interesting because it related to uh, his ideas related to a conversation that we had several months ago with uh, Graham Wood, oh, who yeah. wrote that book about uh, ISIS, and it is very similar stuff. Which is that in in Graham's view the solution to combating extremism was not to dismiss the extremists or say something, you know, say catchphrases like, oh, that's not really Islam or whatever, but to actually sort of compete with them on the information front and say, no, here's more information and actually out-argue them with uh, data. And so here's an example of what Ahmad's doing that's uh, very much along those lines. Yeah, well, we'll have to get him on once the uh, project has moved a little further and see how it's going. Yeah, no, but I think it's really cool. And also, again, like the refugee stuff, mm. we we always talk about how awful it is, but how many people are actually trying to think of something new that might uh, might address it? Yeah, didn't you ask me once where refugees charge their phones? That was that actually, yeah. I mean, because you see all these photos of um, you know, uh, you hear about you know refugees using their phones mm. to get across waters and stuff like that. And I was just thinking about the uh, logistical aspects of that. It's not surprising that refugees have phones. Of course, it's a mainstay technology all around the world. But, you know, you just think about, like, the challenge of actually using a phone while you're dealing with, uh, you know, the challenges of being a refugee. So the, the technical aspects are still very interesting to me. Yeah, for sure. I guess soon you might be asking where they're charging their biometric phones, right? Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully so. And then we can see how the uh, project is working. All right. Uh, Should we leave it there? Let's do it. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you can follow Imad at Emostak. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. 
That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.